We all know there are times when you don't have many choices in who you work with, like when a pipe bursts and you need a plumber right now. But when it comes to your mental health, you should have choices so you don't get stuck with a therapist who can't remember what you tell them every week. To find a good therapist for you, try ZocDoc, the place where you can find and book hundreds of types of doctors, including thousands of mental health providers. We're talking about therapists, psychologists, and psychiatrists. ZocDoc is a free app and website where you can search and compare hundreds of types of patient-reviewed in-network doctors, including mental health providers, and instantly book appointments with them online. The typical wait time to see a mental health provider booked on ZocDoc is just four days. That's it. You can even score same-day appointments, either online or in person. I use this, and you should too. Go to ZocDoc.com stronger and download the ZocDoc app for free. Then find and book a top-rated therapist, psychiatrist, or psychologist today. That's Z-O-C-D-O-C dot com slash stronger. ZocDoc dot com slash stronger. So was there ever a point where you would have said, all right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give up? Or what would that point have been when you wouldn't have tried again? I don't think that point would have. You know, if, if, they, if I was disqualified and they said they wouldn't read my application, I probably would send it in anyway. Uh, I... I <laughs> I don't think I would have stopped, um, even to this day. I, 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 you know, there's a chapter in the book. The first chapter is kind of some of the stories we're talking about now is, is one in a million is not zero. Maybe as long as you're trying, even, even if the odds are like very low, as, as long as you try it, that doesn't mean it's a zero outcome. It probably of success is, is, uh, is not, is non-zero. It's only when you give up that it becomes zero. So. I felt as, as long as I was trying, there was a chance. And that's the only thing I could control. I, I couldn't force them to take me, um, to pick me, to select me. Um, but I knew I could at least control my effort. So I would have, I think I just would have tried to keep going. The, the, one of the things that kept me going too was, as you say, it wasn't that I didn't interview well. Or- Welcome to Mentally Stronger, the show that will help you develop the mental strength you need to reach your greatest potential, no matter what life throws your way. I'm Amy Morin psychotherapist, mental strength trainer, and an international best-selling author of five books on mental strength. Every Monday, I introduce you to a guest whose story and expertise can inspire you to think, feel, and do your best in life. And the fun part is, we record it all from a sailboat in the Florida Keys. Now, let's dive into today's episode. Do you have a dream that you haven't pursued? Have you given up on something because a challenge seemed insurmountable? Do you struggle to stay flexible when things don't go as planned? If so, today's episode is for you. I'm talking to Mike Massimino, a former astronaut and mechanical engineer professor at Columbia University. Mike's got a great story of beating the odds to become an astronaut and overcoming challenges that would have caused most of us to give up along the way. He's now written a new book called Moonshot, The Guide to Achieving the Impossible, which is about to hit the shelves. I got my hands on an advanced copy and I loved his message. Some of the things he talks about today are how to overcome the fear of failure, how to persevere even when your challenges seem impossible, and how to keep loving life no matter what happens. Make sure to stick around until the end of the episode for the therapist take, where I'll give you my take on Mike's mental strength building strategies. So here's Mike Massimino on how to keep going when the odds are against you. Mike Massimino, welcome to Mentally Stronger. 
Uh, thanks, Sammy. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, we've never had an astronaut on the show, so I'm excited to talk to you. And loved your new book called Moonshot. A NASA Astronaut's Guide to Achieving the Impossible. So I had to say at first, I was thinking, well, what is an astronaut going to be able to tell us that the average person can relate to? You've done all of these amazing things and, and you went to outer space. Most of us will never do that. But in reading your book, I quickly realized that you have a lot of strategies that can help us mere mortals who will never make it into outer space. Yeah, that, uh, well, well, thanks. That's, that's, that was the idea of the book. And what I found is uh, I was, I was kind of surprised in some ways, I guess, that how much I had learned over the, my time at NASA does translate to everyday life. And uh, I discovered that uh, speaking to audiences of uh, different types and sorts and backgrounds around the country over the, the time since I left NASA about 10 years ago and how some of these stories really resonated with people. And I, I wasn't always able to, to know ahead of time what story would work. Uh, a lot of it came out of the question and answer time after, you know, after a keynote, people would ask me something and I would go into a story and that seemed to, or a lesson and a story that would teach a lesson more or less and, or illustrate a lesson. And, and those things seem to really resonate those takeaways with people. And so that that's what the book is. It's, it's a, a series of stories and lessons that I learned as an astronaut that seem to resonate most with the people that I've uh, spoken with, spoken to. And I want to get into some of those takeaways in a minute, but first, can you share your story? How did you decide you were going to become an astronaut and when did that come about? Uh, well, I'm old enough to remember Neil Armstrong taking those first steps on the moon. I was six years old when that happened. And, uh, that, that really captured my heart and soul. And, and I thought this was so important. I wanted to grow up to be like Neil Armstrong and the other astronauts. That's, I wanted to not just be an astronaut. I wanted to grow up to be like him. I thought he was really cool. And, uh, they were my heroes and I followed the space program very closely but I never really thought it could happen. I think uh, by the time I was about eight or nine, I, I really, you know, I started thinking about it. I was afraid of heights. I was scared of a lot of things. I think growing up, you know, I was like, ah, there's no way this can happen. Um, so I, I never, I, you know, I, I kind of, by the time I was eight or nine, I was like, ah, this can't happen. And I kind of crossed it off the list of things that were possible in life. And um, when I went to, uh, went to college, I studied engineering and I was a senior in college and I went to uh, the movies and saw this movie, The Right Stuff which is based on Tom Wolfe's book of the same name. And it's about the original seven astronauts and the test pilots that came before them. And uh, it kind of rekindled that little boy dream I had. It never really died. It just was something I never thought was possible. And I still didn't necessarily think it was possible. But by this time in the 1980s, this is mid-1980s, the space shuttle was flying. And it wasn't just military test pilots like Neil Armstrong and, and my other heroes from way back when I was a little boy. It was now... Uh, scientists and engineers and medical doctors, a lot of civilians. There were still a lot of test pilots but and people from the military, but a lot of civilians as well. With the shuttle program, the first women were selected to be astronauts, the first people of color. So it seemed to be more, more of an opportunity for people who weren't just military test pilots. And I thought, well, you know, I'm an engineer. Maybe, maybe I can at least try. And if that doesn't work, I can at least be part of the program. So I worked for a couple of years after college and, uh, went to grad school with the purpose of trying to get the, uh, the experience and the education I needed to be a, comp a competitive candidate to try to be a NASA astronaut. But it wasn't a smooth ride, right? You got rejected several times? 
Yeah, I got rejected from uh, nothing smooth. You know, <laughs> nothing goes well. <laughs> I think uh, when something when something goes well, I'm always suspicious. Like, why was right. that? How did, why did that happen the first time? Yeah, I, you know, I, I learned those lessons. I think in school, growing up and playing sports, and you know, there's disappointments, and you just have to keep going. And uh, in you know, grad school, I failed my qualifying exam the first time I took it for my doctorate, and I really did poorly on it, and was uh, luckily given a second chance, and I was able to pull it out the second time. And uh, with the astronaut uh, application process, it wasn't any different. I was rejected uh, three times before I was uh, selected, and that included a medical disqualification along the way, too, that I had to overturn. So, uh, it, yeah, I, it, it, was not a, it, it was not smooth, but it was, um, it was a very interesting path, and I was finally selected um, in 1996 to be uh, a member of the astronaut class of 1996. And... And do you want to talk about how you overcame that eyesight issue? Sure. Yeah, that was, uh, you know, that was a bit of a challenge. Things are different now. Um, you know, I, I was just, just yesterday, last evening, um, Woody Holberg, a friend of mine who's a current astronaut, uh, came into the program 21 years after I did. So he's still in there. He just got back from space and he was uh, visiting in New York. And I was asking him, you know, what they've changed. I don't even know if there's a height requirement anymore. <laughs> he was... I'm six foot three and a half. I was six foot four was the limit, but they've thrown away a lot of those requirements. Um, the eyesight requirement, you have to be able to, you have to be correctable to 2020, but which now, which I, is pretty reasonable. I think I, you know, you have to be able to see well enough, at least with glasses, but kind of like driving, being able to drive a car. But you know, now uh, back then rather uh, you had to see well without glasses or contacts and they didn't accept LASIK. I don't know if LASIK existed back then, 25 years ago, whenever it was when I was applying. And uh, I failed the eye exam. I couldn't see well enough. And um, they disqualified me, which meant I couldn't even try again. Like That's it. You're medically disqualified unless I could overturn it. But how do you over how do you correct your eyesight when you can't do any medical procedure to to help? So that would be disqualifying anything that was available back then to change your eyesight. Medically, with you know, with an operation or something, wasn't wasn't acceptable. Again, all these this is all changed now. It's no longer the case. Um, so I found out about something called vision training, where you could try to naturally improve your eyesight doing exercises. It was mainly done with children. I found out when I went to see the doctor about this, and yeah, but she was willing to. Doctor Hopping, this uh, optometrist uh, I met in in Houston, was willing to try to help me and. Uh, I was able to pick up a couple lines on the eye chart so that at least I could overturn that medical disqualification. They accepted the new data and said, okay, uh, you can see better now. That wasn't any guarantee. I still had to apply and go through all the hoops again. But I was able to apply that fourth time and, and I got another uh, an interview. So the interview is a whole week long of, of things. It's uh, medical exams and including the eye exam and it's a selection board interview with the selection board and the social events. They, they get to know you really well during that week. So I got another crack at it uh, a couple years after my disqualification and was able to to, uh, to pull through that time and got, got selected. You know, I think it's one thing to be rejected because something you didn't interview well or there was another problem. But to go back and say, I'm actually going to try again after being medically disqualified, especially something like your eyesight, like who wouldn't think that you could improve your eyesight? I don't know. So was there ever a point where you would have said, all right, I'm going to, I'm going to give up or what would that point have been when you wouldn't have tried again? I don't think that point would have, I think I would have, 
I, you know, if, if they, if I was disqualified and they said they wouldn't read my application, I probably would send it in anyway. Uh, I, I, I don't think I would have stopped. Um, even to this day, I, 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 you know, there's a chapter in the book, the first chapter is kind of some of the stories we're talking about now is, is one in a million is not zero. Maybe as long as you're trying, even, even if the odds are like very low, as, as long as you try it, that doesn't mean it's a zero outcome, a zero problem, probably, probably of a, of a, of failure is, is non-zero, uh, is, I'm sorry, probably of success is, is, uh, is not, is non-zero. It's only when you give up that it becomes zero. So. I felt as, as long as I was trying, there was a chance. And that's the only thing I could control. I, I couldn't force them to take me, um, to pick me, to select me. Um, but I knew I could at least control my effort. So I would have, I think I just would have tried to keep going. The, the, one of the things that kept me going too was, as you say, it wasn't that I didn't interview well or, or I was being told, no, nah, this isn't for you. It, one, of, one of the good things I think was that um, as I got to meet more people and got to meet some of the astronauts and through the, interview process I, I felt like i felt very comfortable i felt like that was that those are my people i wanted to be part of that organization I, I i actually thought i fit in well except i couldn't pass the eye exam so you know th that was I was like really you know just the you know i can't see well enough is that's really the problem and and it, it, it to me it, it didn't seem like something that was worthy of stopping me you know if they would have told me no mike you know you're just unqualified or we just don't like you or you're not going to fit in for this, this, or this reason, you know, that's, what are you going to, what are you going to do there? Um, that's, you know, that's maybe understandable, but the eyesight thing, although it's understandable, it just, just didn't sit right. And, uh, as I, as I found there are other astronauts too, that I came across, uh, afterwards, um, who shared some of their stories too, that I don't, I don't include any of these in a book, but, but a lot of people got hurdles to overcome that were medical issues that they had to, be creative about to try to, to try to overcome those. And so sometimes it's economic hurdles. Sometimes it's educational. Sometimes it's experience and sometimes it's a physical issue and you, you can't let any of that stuff stop you. I think when you're trying to pursue something that you're passionate about, you just got to keep going and try to knock those things out of the way. And now a quick word from our sponsor. Building physical strength is just as important to me as building mental strength. That's why I love drinking AG1 every day. Ever since I started drinking it, I feel energized and I feel more focused when I'm working. There's so much information out there, though, about supplements and nutrition that it feels overwhelming sometimes. But AG1 makes it simple. It's a nutrition supplement that supports your body's universal needs like gut optimization, stress management, and immune support. My producer started drinking AG1 instead of his morning coffee, and he says he now has sustained energy throughout the day. He even brought the travel packs with him when he went to Spain last week to go to the Latin Grammys. And he says AG1 helped him feel his best while he was on the road. I drink mine right before I go to the gym in the afternoons, and it helps me feel good about all the things I'm doing to take care of my mind and my body. AG1 is a supplement I trust to provide the support my body needs daily. If you want to take ownership of your health, it starts with AG1. Try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3, K2, and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase. Go to drinkag1 slash mentally stronger. That's drinkag1 slash mentally stronger. Check it out. Do you want to get high quality meat delivered straight to your house? Or in my case, a sailboat? Try ButcherBox. 
It saves me time and money. And if you order right now, Mentally Stronger listeners can get steak, chicken, or salmon free in every single order for an entire year. I love that ButcherBox offers grass-fed beef, free-range organic chicken, and wild-caught seafood. There are no antibiotics or added hormones. They even offer vegetarian options. ButcherBox lets you decide how often you want deliveries, and you can pick a curated plan, or you could completely customize your box. Sign up at butcherbox.com stronger and get our special deal. ButcherBox is offering our listeners a free-for-a-year offer, plus an additional $20 off. Choose salmon, chicken breast, or steak tips free in every order for a year. Sign up today at butcherbox.com stronger and use code STRONGER to choose your free-for-a-year offer. Plus, get $20 off your first order. But there are a lot of kids, a lot of 10-year-olds out there who say, I want to be an astronaut when I grow up. The odds, like you found out when you did the math, were literally one in a million, right? Yeah, they weren't, weren't good. <laughs> weren't very encouraging, but that was all right. And you weren't deterred by that. I think most people, when they figure out the odds, they think, well, it'll be much easier to, to do something else in life. I'll be a mechanic here on planet Earth rather than try to go up and fix the Hubble Space Telescope. Mm-hmm. What do you think made you different that you said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try anyway? I, I, I wanted more than anything to be a part to be a part of the astronaut office at NASA. I wanted to be a part of that team. I, I, I at, at that early age of, of six, when I was, and even before the Apollo 11 flight, I can remember Apollo 8 going to the moon and a, Apollo 9 and Apollo 10 orbited the moon, uh, did not land. They came very close to landing, but their mission was to test out the lunar module and come back. I remember all that stuff and how important it was. And uh, I never lost sight of that of that importance in my mind. And that was, and still is, is my passion is, uh, other than my family, what I, what I love in life is the space program. I think it's, it's done. Uh, it's, it's a, to me, it's an absolute good. This is the way I see it. It's, it's something that is worthwhile. It's, 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 uh, it's about the future. It's inspirational. It allows for international cooperation. There are so many good things about it that I really wanted to be a, part of it. And, uh, as I, as I learned more about the actual job of being an astronaut, um, it was so much more than flying in space. It was being, uh, firsthand right there in the middle of decision-making and how you were going to do things in space. And it was the best group of people I've ever encountered. And it that wasn't just the astronauts, but our instructors and the people in mission control. And the more I found out about it, I, I worked in Houston as a as an engineer for McDonnell Douglas, an aerospace company, um, as a research engineer at the Johnson Space Center and got to meet lots of people. And the more I learned about it, the more I liked it and the more I felt comfortable there, which was kind of odd. You know, I, I didn't, I, I was intimidated by, by just about everything because I, to me, it was just so cool. And these were my heroes that I was getting to know. But at the same time, I, I felt really comfortable with them. I, I really, love the culture. I love the, 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 the people, their attitude, the, the way that they pursued their jobs and their personal lives too. And I, just, I wanted to be a part of it. And you know, these are things that I try to, that, that I learned at that, those years at NASA that I try to share in the book. And then you were given a job to go fix the Hubble Space Telescope twice, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. That was a good job. Yep. <laughs> were there ever times when you thought, I mean, 
you risked your life. Were there ever moments where you thought, is this, is this worth it? Um, I think that happens to, I think everybody, you know, you're, when you're working hard, it was, was the risking the life was one thing, but it was also a lot of work uh, the job. The astronaut job is really a job and it's, it's, you know, it's not glamorous. It's not, you know, going for training one, you know, one morning and flying in the afternoon. It's not a tour. It was, you know, the, the astronaut job, even this guy, my, my friend Woody, who I mentioned earlier was selected in 2017 and just flew this, this year, early this year and got back. So. You know, you're, you're talking about years of training and working hard before you get a chance to fly. And uh, there's, uh, there's a lot of hard work involved. There's a lot of late nights. There's a lot of weekends. There's a lot of missing holidays and birthdays and anniversaries. And, and there is that danger involved there, too. And, uh, you know, you're, you're, you're compensated well, but you're, you're a government employee. We didn't, get any, <laughs> we didn't get any hazardous duty pay. We didn't get any <laughs> flight time. We, we would have, I would have basically worked for free. So we were very happy getting paid like the standard government rate and no frills. And that was okay because we were so passionate about our job. And, but still it was, it was something that you, I think you had to remind yourself of why you're doing it. And I I felt it was certainly worth the risk. I think a dream is worth the risk. Um, I I think it's, I think it's, it's not good. I think to be doing something that you don't feel passionate about. And I feel very lucky that I had something that I felt so passionate about that I was willing to risk my life. And to me, I think that's a blessing to have that uh, in life. And uh, with the Hubble, to me, it was pretty straightforward. It was a really cool flight uh, because it was a lot of space walking and, and we got to design new tools and techniques. And it was, for me, it was um, engineers uh, and an astronaut's dream to be part of that team on, on those two missions that you mentioned. Um, uh, so I, I, and I felt the science coming out of the Hubble was worth the effort as well. The, my first flight, we installed the, an instrument about the size of a refrigerator called the, the advanced camera for surveys. And that was used, the observations that the astronomers made with that instrument um, resulted in the discovery of dark energy, which led to the awarding of a Nobel Prize. And um, the uh, James Webb Telescope has launched about a year and a half ago, well, almost two years now, launched in December of two years ago. But we started seeing images about a year and a half ago, and we still see some great images from the new telescope. And there was a documentary that just was made, uh, an IMAX documentary that I went to the opening. And a lot of the scientists from James Webb were also the scientists from Hubble. And this guy, Matt Mountain, who is the head of the, um, the uh, Space Telescope Science Institute, was there. And he was running that, that the uh, the, uh, the uh, Space Telescope Science Institute takes in all the data and handles who's going to use the observatory and what discoveries and were made and so on, kind of oversees all that. And, uh, you know, he still says, you know, we, we owe you we owe you guys such a debt of gratitude for what you did. And, you know, then the no, he mentioned the Nobel Prize. I'm like, yeah, well, I didn't win the Nobel Prize. You guys won the Nobel Prize. And he goes, well, we wouldn't have, couldn't have done it without you. And, uh Maybe that's true. There's probably some other, probably a lot of other astronauts could have done exactly what we did, but we were the ones that got to do it. And so I, I felt very fortunate that I was put in that position to do something that I felt was so worthwhile. But it didn't, again, didn't go 100% smoothly, right? There's a story you tell in the book about how mm-hmm. you stripped the screw. Yeah, that was on my second flight. Every spacewalk that I was either outside performing or inside helping with, 
Because when you're not, we have, we have two teams of spacewalkers, two people each on both of my missions. So when the other guys are outside, you're inside trying to help them. And when you're outside, they're helping you going through the checklist and trying to help you problem solve. But every one of those uh, had something go wrong. There's always something that you didn't plan for, that you didn't know about, something was different, or you just make a mistake. And uh, the, the worst of that that happened to me, which ended up with a very good ending, was um, I stripped a screw on a, on a, trying to remove a handrail to do a repair on an instrument. Uh, it was the most complicated spacewalk we had ever attempted because this instrument was no longer working. We had never tried to repair an instrument on orbit. We would just remove the broken instrument, put a new one in, but we didn't have a replacement for this one. And uh, so it was a, over 100 new tools were designed for this task, and it was on my day and trained for years with lots of help. And um, I just made a real, really bonehead mistake. I, I stripped a screw on a, on this handrail and, and couldn't remove it. Um, luckily it was loose at the top and one of our engineers on the ground, a guy by the name of Jim Corbo, uh, thought about what he would do in his garage. He would just use brute force and rip the thing off. And, uh, that was a good solution. And they had to test that. We didn't have much time to figure this out. And I didn't know what was going on. I'm in space, just kind of waiting to try to do the best I can and troubleshoot and trying to try to live through this nightmare that I created. And, uh, and they, they, uh, they did a test at the Goddard Space Flight Center where they, they got another instrument and put a handrail in the same configuration and pulled on it with a fish scale and it read 60 pounds when it broke the screw. And so they, they thought I could try to just rip it off. And that's, that's what ended up working. And, um, and I think about that. It wasn't, it was, it was a, it was a, a real bonehead move, but uh, in the investigation, it showed that the reason it happened was that that bolt required more torque than the others. Uh, we didn't know that ahead of time. They put more glue on the threads of that one and on the others because they, they did a bit of an investigation after to see if they understood, you know, why did this happen? So really, you know, they could say it wasn't my fault, but I, you know, I still, I'm the guy that did it and um, felt terrible about it at the time. But I, looking back on it, I think that uh, what, what got me through that was just uh, that perseverance we talked about earlier of not giving up. Uh, I, I wasn't going to give up there either. I, I was not feeling good about what had happened, but I also wasn't going to give up. I was, we were going to see it through the end. Uh, of that spacewalk at least and see what we could do. And, and so I think that sometimes I, I think that persistence to get you to a position you want to be in is also important to remember what got you there. And that's what you're going to need to be successful when the chips are down. And then that's a theme that runs throughout your book. And you talk a lot about owning your mistakes, but also having a team that it's not hundred percent up to you, but to be able to have mm -hmm. a, a team you can rely on reaching out to other people, calling out something as soon as you see it mm -hmm. and putting all of those things together clearly. And that's what worked for you in that moment as well. Yep. Yeah. You know, you make, you don't want to make mistakes, but when you do, uh, you know, it's okay to be regretful about it. There's a chapter in the book. It's a, entitled 30 seconds of regret. You can, it's okay to be disappointed when you, when you mess something up, but you also got to get back in the game and, and let people help you when, when, you know, don't, don't think you have to solve everything yourself. And certainly that's the way we were trained. Um, I was speaking to my buddy last night. We were, we had, we had an event with the, the students at Columbia. I, I'm referring to my friend Woody again. Um, and they asked him what he, what he learned at NASA. And he said he got comfortable with making mistakes, <laughs> which we don't, you know, we don't, that's because you're going to make them, you know, you're doing, it's not, not anything is that complicated, but people, we make mistakes doing everything, right? You just mess up a lot. And, and you got to get comfortable with that because if you beat yourself up too much for too long, 
uh, you know, you'll you'll never try anything again. I think you you don't want to make the only way you're going to make mistakes. The only way you can try stuff is to be comfortable messing it up every once in a while. Yeah. So I love that you talked about that in the book about owning it and and then moving on. What was your experience with coming back to Earth after being in outer space? Um, it was uh, it, it it was you know, and, and it was an adjustment, but um, I I miss you know I miss my time at NASA. I miss my friends. I miss the work we did, the engineering work we did. Um, uh, but uh, you know. I, I mean, why don't you ask me a little more specifically? What do you mean by adjustment? Are you thinking in what way? So I'm thinking about, I've always heard the story that when Buzz Aldrin came back, uh-huh. he thought after seeing what Earth looked like from outer space, mm-hmm. he thought, now I'm gonna never going to see anything quite that cool ever again in my life. The story goes that once he came back to Earth, he struggled with substance use, with mental health issues, and a lot of it was thought to be because the best time of his life was already behind him. I don't know him. I don't know how much of that is true. I've never asked him, but curious, like, how do you do that? You go out and you see this amazing thing. When you come back to, to earth and you start looking around, things are still cool, but maybe not quite as cool as what you just saw. Yeah, I think that, well, that's certainly the case, but I, 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 it sounds a little harsh on buzz there. Uh, truthfully, I, I think, um, you know, I mean, he might've had his struggles, but I think what, what's interesting about him is that he's still, you know, he's still alive and doing well. And is and now he's, Geez, he's must be, you know, he's in his mid nineties now. And, and, uh, but he's still out there, you know, uh, talking to people and, and, uh, trying to educate folks about what's going on in the space program. Uh, but I, I would, his, one of his crewmates, I thought summed it up pretty well, which Mike Collins wrote a book called carrying the fire. And, uh, Mike Collins unfortunately passed a couple of years ago, but I got to know him as well. And, uh, one of my heroes, right? My Apollo 11 heroes, and Neil Armstrong too is in there, right? But, but in his book, uh, and I've heard him say this too, Mike Collins talks about how he had to come to the realization that the most interesting job in, he was ever going to have in his life, he had in his, in his late thirties when he was, yeah. I, I forget what, what time he was, he probably was in his early, I think he, they, all those, I, I know Neil Armstrong was 38 years old when he walked on the moon and, and Mike and Buzz were probably around that age, right? So, um, and that's just the way it is. And I, I think that that's, that's true that you're not going to be able to replicate that. You know, you're going to get older and, uh, this, this time you have that was being an astronaut that was glorious is no longer part of your life. Like it was, but that doesn't mean that life isn't good any longer. It means just you're in a different phase. And, I think how you react to that is important. You can be upset about it or you can be grateful for what you have and, and move forward with that to make a difference in your life and other people's lives. The, uh, I, I think one of the really good examples um, uh, is Alan Bean, who I talk about quite often in the book, um, who was the fourth person to walk on the moon. And after he left the astronaut office, he decided to produce, produce, pursue, sorry, to pursue his dream of of painting, he was also an, an artist, which is kind of unusual for a person to be a engineer, test pilot, astronaut. You know that, and, and right brain, left brain stuff, and then also be a very talented artist. I mean, his paintings uh, are amazing. And what he got to do was paint. What he did was paint his memories on the moon, and he was able to paint things that never happened on the moon, 
that he wished he would have done on the moon, like throw a football with his friend. I mean, that wasn't part of the flight plan, but he depicts that. He has this, my favorite uh, image that he has, the famous, my favorite painting of his, and I have a, a, a little lithograph of it that I, I flew two of them in space, one for Alan and one for me. And I signed his and he signed mine. So, I, I, you know, it was what it was. It's called the fantasy. And it's him with his two best friends. He flew in space with his two best friends, Pete Conrad, who he walked on the moon with, and another guy named Dick Gordon. And they were really good friends from the Navy and as astronauts. And they're buried near each other uh, in Arlington National Cemetery. They were very close friends, the three of them. They, they've all passed now. But um, Dick Gordon had to stay in orbit around the moon. He didn't get a chance to go down to the moon with his friends. He stayed in orbit around the moon and they had to go down and come back up. So Alan has this painting. It's called the fantasy with the three of them on the moon, you know, and one of them is putting the bunny ears behind the other guy's head. So it's, it's, um, he was able to, to do that. And also became a mentor to me and many other astronauts. He spoke to every astronaut class and told us all the things that he had learned. Uh, and I, I think that in that case, there's an example of someone who, took the opportunity they had as an astronaut. And when that was done, they moved on to do something else. And that doesn't mean that it's any better or worse. It just means it, it's different. And uh, you have opportunities that no, I mean, he was able to do artwork that no one else could do because he was an artist that experienced a moon and what it was like on the moon. And, you know, the moon, other moonwalkers couldn't paint and we haven't sent a, an artist up there yet really who could paint like that. So, um, he was able to do that uniquely. And I guess the way I looked at it was when I was done with my flying, um, I wanted to go back to teaching. I was a professor at Georgia tech right before I was selected. And I, I only did that for a, less than a year. And then I got picked by NASA and left Atlanta and went, to, went back to Houston. Um, but I thought, well, I, I, I that little experience of, of teaching at a university, I like, and that's what I'm doing now at Columbia. And I like telling the stories. I, I enjoy speaking to you about it. I enjoy writing the book and telling people about what I learned. And for me, that that's how I'm able to not forget about everything that I learned and relive it just about every day. Cause I'm talking about it to somebody every day, it seems. Um, so you can, you can look at it. I guess you can look at it in different ways, but it is, I would say it is true that that's probably the most interesting job any of us are going to have ever. Uh, but there is a lot you can do it, it after. And you can look at, some really interesting things that astronauts have done after they've left the astronaut office. I like that idea that, yes, you can still take what you learn and do something slightly different with it. As a therapist, I'll have sometimes people who retire and then they're like, well, mm -hmm. who am I now that I'm no longer a doctor or now that I'm no yeah. longer a, a football player? Like, who am I mm -hmm. in life? And to figure out that new identity and not looking at it that, yes, the best years of my life are behind me or the coolest thing I ever did was... 30 years ago and I'll never do anything that cool again. Yeah. And in fact, in your book, you talk about one of the important things for us to, to carry forward would be to always be amazed. Can you talk yeah. a little bit about that? Yeah. And you were, I, I think you might've been going there uh, with, with your question earlier about when you see the planet and you come back and so on. Um, it's, this is an amazing place we live on. And when, and, and we all maybe kind of know that or see beautiful things on the planet. But I, I think that, Earth was meant to be seen in its true beauty from space. And we were at a very high altitude for the space shuttle, 100 miles higher than when the space station flies when we went to Hubble. So we could see the Earth, the curvature of the Earth in its entirety. It took up our whole field of view, but, but you could see it as a gigantic 
ball, a big planet. And uh, it it is just beautiful. It's it's. Uh, I felt like I was looking into paradise, like I was looking into heaven. And I had the thought that you know there can be nothing more beautiful than where we live. Maybe this is heaven. And it, I look differently at the planet. You know, I I'm, can look around my camera and look out my window and see trees. Right, <laughs> we got kind of like in a forest setting in the back there, and it's it's just absolutely gorgeous you know, with the fall leaves and and the blue sky and um, people that live here. And there's a lot of bad stuff going on, but there's also a lot of beauty. And I, I think that it's important for us to remember that, that we live in an amazing world. We have things that we can do with technology that are incredible, like what we're doing now. And we can have relationships with people and friendships and look around and see some amazing things, no matter where you are. I mean, even if you're, if you're in a beautiful setting or if you're in a, in a city, I think is also a beautiful setting. You look at the architecture and the buildings and the hustle. I live in New York city, so I get to enjoy that a lot too. So I, I think we have to sometimes remember how lucky we are to be here. And um, especially when times get tough, to try yeah. to have those good thoughts that, uh, that can make us appreciate uh, what a miracle it is that we're here in the first place. And one last question I wanted to ask you about. Mm -hmm. My favorite quote from your book is you said, there's more to life out there and you owe it to yourself to find out what that is. Ooh, that's a good one. I wrote that. Right? You did. You did. And it really stood out to me. Right? And I think if we all just kept that in mind, like we owe it to ourselves to yeah. find out what that is, that's much different than the world. We deserve something just because we worked hard or that the world yeah. owes us something. But instead of saying, yeah. no, I should, it's up to me to find out what the those great things are. Yeah, no, you're right. And uh, in the book also, I talk about some of the advice, I mentioned Alan Bean, just what you said about you, you, the world doesn't owe you a thing. When he told when, he, when I was leaving NASA, I, always, I would see him quite often. I would see him once or twice a year. I would go visit him if I hadn't seen him for a while. He lived in Houston, Alan did, just to you know, get some good advice from him. And, and when I was thinking of leaving the office, uh, that's the guy I got a lot of really good advice from. And uh, and I think I remember he was he was I talk about this in the book. He was walking me out to the car after this conversation we had. And uh, he said, Mike, I have one more thing to tell you. He goes, never, never wherever you end up after whatever your decision is about leaving or staying or whatever you're going to do. Don't ever feel entitled to anything. It doesn't matter that you were, had a successful career as an astronaut and risked your life and didn't make a lot of money. And that doesn't matter. Right. It, that that does not matter. And if you feel that you're entitled to something, you'll never be happy. And uh, you're just setting yourself up for, for, for misery. And I think that that's, that's really good advice. Don't ever expect anything. Don't feel entitled that I did this and now I deserve this. Now, you don't, you know, you, you do it, you do your best and, and have that passion and do what you do, hopefully because you love it or you think it's the right thing to do and uh, never expect anything. But at the same time, I think you owe it to yourself to give yourself your dream a chance. And, Give, give why why not you know you have to you have to just you owe it to yourself you you owe it to that person inside of you to do the best you can to to fulfill whatever dream or interest you might have and you're going to get knocked down probably and told no and have obstacles but you really owe it to yourself i i, I i'm glad i wrote that <laughs> i'm glad <laughs> you, you mentioned that because i i that's i think very true that, uh, yeah, the odds may be against you, but you owe, owe it to yourself to give it a try. And you're a 
perfect example of somebody that did just that and got knocked down many times and kept getting back up. And here you are. And now in your post NASA days, you're still doing some amazing things like writing books so that we can learn from you and you run the big bang theory. You get to do some cool stuff to, to still, you know, talk about these things and the lessons that you learned. So thank you so much for doing that. For our listeners who want to learn more about you, where's the best place for them to go? Uh, the best place to learn about me, I guess, is my website. I uh, appreciate you asking. It's uh, MikeMassimino.com. Uh, you get it right now. If you go there, you'll get hit in the face with information about the book. So, <laughs> so if you're interested in learning more uh, in in more detail, the the book is there if you're if you're inclined. But my website uh, has some info about me and videos and speech topics and other stuff on there. That's that's probably the best place to go. We will link to it in our show notes. Oh, you're awesome. Thank you so much. Mike Massimino, thank you so much for being on Mentally Stronger. Thanks so much for having me. Welcome to The Therapist Take. It's the part of the show where I'll give you my take on Mike's strategies that you can start using in your everyday life to grow mentally stronger. Here are three of my favorite strategies that he shared. One, get creative when you encounter an obstacle. The odds were stacked against Mike when he tried to become an astronaut. Many people want the job. Very few people get picked. When he got rejected because of his vision problems, his chances were almost non-existent. And most of us, including me, probably would have walked away at that point. But he didn't give up, and he figured out how to try and improve his vision. Just to be clear, though, I don't believe in the saying, never give up. I think too many people stick with things far too long and it costs them their health or their relationships or their money. But I do believe in creative problem solving. If it makes sense to keep going and you look for creative ways to overcome challenges, you might find that you can do things that once seemed impossible. Two, give yourself permission to make mistakes. You might expect an astronaut to say, there's no room for a single mistake because in their field, a mistake could be deadly. But Mike says he expected to encounter problems and he expected to make some mistakes. He also stresses the importance of pointing out your mistakes right away so that you can get help. This is tough even when you're not in a life or death situation. You might hide your mistake at work or try to cover something up because you don't want anyone to notice. But when you accept that mistakes are going to happen when they actually do happen, you can put your energy into working on the issue, not trying to just cover it up. And three, always look for opportunities that will help you stay excited about life. I don't think Mike liked my question about the story of Buzz Aldrin and whether going to outer space actually caused problems for him when he returned because he thought the best time of his life was behind him. But I liked how he said he continues to make sure that life stays fun and exciting. Even though his days of being in outer space are over, he doesn't look at it that the best of his life is behind him. That's important. As a therapist, I encounter a lot of people who struggle with this. They think the best years of their lives were when the kids were home, or maybe before they had kids, or when they were younger. But if you draw that conclusion that the best years of your life are already behind you, you'll make it true. What if you have an attitude that the best part is yet to come? You'll probably make that true as well. So those are three of Mike's strategies that you can start putting into practice today. 
Get creative when you encounter an obstacle, expect to make mistakes, and always look for opportunities that will help you stay excited about life. To learn more about Mike, go pick up a copy of his new book, Moonshot. Thank you for hanging out with us today and for listening to Mentally Stronger. If you know someone who could benefit from learning about how to build mental strength, share this show with them. Simply sharing a link to this episode could help someone feel better and grow stronger. And as always, a big thank you to my show's producer, who's good at doing things that might seem impossible, Nick Valentine. <laughs>